You're listening to highlights from One Planet podcast interview with Sir Andy Haynes, Professor of Environmental Change and Public Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He has recently won the 2022 Tyler Prize for Environmental Achievement, often referred to as the Nobel for the Environment. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. Now, in terms of the impacts of climate change on health, when we started 30 years ago, of course, there was very little data. So we made suggestions as to the health outcomes we thought would be affected, like vector-borne diseases, like, as you mentioned, crop failures, water availability, sea level rise, increasing disasters related to climatic extreme events, and obviously the effects of extreme heat as well on vulnerable populations in particular, elderly people, but not just elderly people. So we suggested a whole range of different health impacts that could occur. And I think uh, in general, those ideas have stood the test of time. But of course, as the situation has moved on, we've also become much more preoccupied with action, you know, what kind of action we need to take. So when we started, we were mainly talking about the effects of extreme heat without being able to attribute them to climate change. Because obviously heat waves have occurred throughout history and populations are more or less adapted to different climates. But now I think the science has moved on and we can be much more confident about attributing either some extreme events or trends in extreme heat exposure, for example, to climate change itself, human-induced climate change. So it isn't just natural fluctuations. So that's a change. And as the evidence becomes stronger, of course, it also strengthens the case for climate action, which sadly, as we know at the moment, is not sufficient to really have the desired impact. So yeah, our knowledge has advanced, but the actions that we need to put into practice have not gone at the same speed. And so we're really facing an increasing climate emergency, as you well know. And we don't know quite where it's going to end up, but it could end up two and a half, three degrees hotter than pre-industrial times on global average uh, as we reach the end of the century. So uh, this would be truly disastrous, I think, for humanity. So we have to act rapidly, both in terms of adapting to what we can't prevent, but also cutting emissions rapidly, mitigating greenhouse gas emissions. And if we do that, we can both reduce the risks of dangerous climate change, but also it brings near-term benefits. You mentioned air pollution already. And of course, when we burn fossil fuels, we create greenhouse gases, we also create air pollution. And so when we move away from burning fossil fuels, we also reduce one of the major sources of air pollution. So there's a lot of benefits that come, near and longer-term benefits that come from climate action. It's really important to have, as you say, living examples of change. And so our work is increasingly focusing on implementation of climate action. What actually happens when you try to implement change on a local and maybe even a larger scale? And we know it's not easy. We haven't found that many, not as many as we'd hoped, evaluated actions on climate change mitigation, which can also benefit health. But there are some examples. There are cities which have and are increasingly transforming their city spaces and also their transport systems and so on, making some of the changes that we would like to see happen. And we know that there are changes in behavior occurring as well. Young people, some countries are also changing their dietary preferences, for example, eating more plant-based foods. And that we know is good for the environment and in the long term, good for health as well. So there are some changes happening, but they're not necessarily speed and scale, of course. But nevertheless, they give us hope that change can be made and hopefully will inspire others to follow. And as you say, we need to learn while doing. We can't just sort of sit back and wait for the perfect solution. We have to implement active actions based on the best evidence that we have and then evaluate the impact of those and course correct that if we need to do so. Policy will always be driven, I guess, by the political imperatives and probably to some extent ideological beliefs as well. 
But nevertheless, I think science still has a really important role in by pointing out the consequent positive and negative different policies, but also indicating where there are gaps in knowledge, where we need to reduce the fund more research in order to reduce the uncertainties. I think what we need is a more critical approach to knowledge, but that doesn't mean to say we don't take action. We have to take action in the face of climate change. So we should take the action that we believe there's evidence for, but we should evaluate the impact of those actions to make sure that they're having the desired impact. And it's easy sometimes to forget that there may be trade-offs. You know, we saw this, uh, you know, with the Gilets jaunes issue in France, that those that action was designed to reduce the dependence on fossil fuels and reduce carbon emissions and so on. If you want to change behavior, then you want to change consumption patterns. And as we know, we don't pay the full economic costs of many of our activities. So when we burn fossil fuels, we don't pay the full economic costs of the air pollution or the climate change that's caused when soils are depleted of natural micronutrients and so on, essential nutrients. We're not paying the full cost of all the food that's depleting those soils in an irreversible way. So our financial and fiscal mechanisms don't really reflect the impact of environmental change on the planet. And we're treating these natural systems as a free good which in the end is bound to lead to, and is leading to very damaging effects because ultimately they underpin human civilization. So when we think about cities of the future, we need to think about systems change because you can't just change one thing in isolation. You need to rethink how we can create cities which are both resilient to environmental change. They can withstand environmental shocks better. So for example, reducing the urban heat island, we know that cities are hotter in the surrounding rural areas. And within cities, there's often wide temperature variation, depending on whether you're near a park or whether you're in a very built-up area without any natural shading or green space. And that can cause a massive variation, pretty substantial variation in the temperature exposure. And we know also that some of that's related to inequities. So in many cities, and certainly true in many U.S. cities, the poorer neighborhoods are much less likely to have green space and they're much more likely to suffer exposed to extreme heat. So... One issue is redesigning cities to withstand these climatic shocks, reducing the inequities in the prospects for living that many people have in cities, and thinking about how to minimize the potential impact of climate change by increasing inequities, which could happen unless we forestall that. So that's one issue. The other is how we recreate the transport systems. Now, in many industrialized countries, of course, we depend very much on the private car, and that leads to congestion. Traffic, uh, traffic injuries, deaths on a global scale, about 1.3 million people a year die of traffic injuries. Uh, I won't call them accidents because I think many of them can actually be, be factored out with appropriate policies. So we need to think about win-win policies, which will make cities more pleasant places to live, reduce their environmental footprint. And one of the approaches, of course, is by creating more opportunities for active travel safer walking, cycling, but also better public systems. So reducing our dependence on, on the private car and then emphasizing more when we do need to use a car, shared ownership, for example. So there's a, a number of things that can be done. But of course, in order to change people's travel patterns, you need to make active travel, public transport, both affordable, safe, and pleasant. And that's, I think, a challenge for urban planners that we need to focus much more on that. And also, this has led to the rise of the concept of the 15-minute city, in which basic services are within you know, 15 minutes walking or cycling, you know, whether it be a clinic to see your mm-hmm. primary care, the doctor or whatever you want to see, that the local library or whatever, you know, local supermarket. And so that, I think, is certainly an important approach. I know there's been a bit of pushback on that recently. Some people see it as a potential infringement of their liberties, but I think that's a mistaken 
I think actually it could increase people's freedom because it increases their ability to access key services near to their home in a safe and healthy fashion. But of course, it's not happening at the necessary, but in some countries, it, it greatly outweighs the effects. In others, it just partly offsets them. We also, I think, have to question the kind of economic model of society that we're in, we have at the moment, because it's very much focused on GDP growth. And we do know that GDP is a pretty poor indicator of human progress. And that, of course, economists have pointed that out for years, but it doesn't really stop the fact that GDP growth is still very much the focus, certainly in, in the UK. I mean, most of the discussion is about how can we grow the GDP, rather than how can we actually improve the health and well-being of our population and give people a better quality life within these planetary boundaries, which is, in my view, the kind of key challenge that society has. So we need to think about other metrics that will reflect human progress better and also reflect the environmental cost of human progress. So of course, there have been a whole range of those. No single one has been fully accepted, but there are quite a range of, of options like the Human Development Index, for example. And increasingly, UNDP, the United Nations Development Programme, has been slightly changing its approach and using metrics which will better reflect human progress set against environmental impact. And I think that's the way to go. Sometimes they ask me if I'm optimistic and sometimes they ask me if I've got hope. And I think there is a difference between the two. I mean, optimism is the kind of feeling that the probability is it's all going to be fine. And hope is being that, yeah, there's still a good you know, chance that things could work out well. And I think I'm more of the kind of hope than the optimist men. You know, we have so much knowledge within our grasp and we have so much technology that we could use, but it isn't just about technology. It's also about values. What kind of values, what kind of society we want to live in, what kind of values we have as collectively, as a community, as a society. But that's, of course, a much more contested field. And I do think that we do need to really raise that as an issue in society for social. What kind of society do we want to live in and what kind do we want for the future for ourselves, but also for those that will come after us? And I think that's a crucial debate that we should be having now. I do see that debate beginning and that does give me cause for hope. I'm involved with quite a wide range of different activities, whether it be in cities, we see them some city level decision makers really making very exciting commitments. We do see a few countries really leading the way with some of the work that they're doing. Not enough countries, but there are some. There are many NGOs. There are many innovative businesses. There are initiatives like cooperatives where you can actually buy a share in a wind farm. Then you actually can benefit from the electricity generated from it. And ideally, I'd like to see more communities being able to own their own energy supplies, for example. You know, there are lots of volunteers running food banks, which shouldn't be necessary, but in fact, sadly are. And that, of course, has to give one hope because there are a lot of people out there who do think more broadly and are compassionate and caring people and are thinking about not just today, but also tomorrow. So I'm given a great deal of hope by the kind of people I meet, the people I work with. We have to hope that those, that vision is also translated into political reality. And I think that's where it becomes more difficult because politicians are driven by the short-term imperative being re-elected. And sometimes you have to take decisions which may not be vastly popular. Initially, they may over time become more popular. And we know that probably younger people perhaps are prepared to accept policies that middle-aged and older people may not be prepared to accept and so on. So there are differences within society, sometimes quite deep divisions which need to be addressed and overcome. So I think it's a combination really of seeing some of the excellent, excellent people that I work with around the world some of the really exciting initiatives that are taking place, the speed of technological change. But I think this big issue is, you know, what, what are the values that drive our society? 
uh, what kind of world, what kind of a future do we want? And I'd like to see much more of a debate and public discussion about that. We hope you've enjoyed this program and listening to the highlights of this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.